I have a real burden about this uh, sermon tonight because it is my prayer that some of these young people who are listening to me might feel the call of God to be missionaries in this broken world. And I want to preach tonight um, the final in the series on issues and answers, what I believe is the most important sermon of all of the sermons. It has to do with God's call and a world in need. And I want you to join me in a special prayer before we begin this service. Would you please? Our Father, I pray that you, as you have spoken through this wonderful music, shall speak now through the faltering tongue of your servant. And may there be something like happened in the incarnation when you enfleshed man to speak your word. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you will turn your Old Testament to the sixth chapter of Isaiah, my uh, good friend Henry Blackaby pronounces it Isaiah. Uh, he's got a right to be wrong. The sixth chapter of Isaiah, the great story of an encounter with, with a call to mission. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am disintegrating, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I answered, Lord, how long is this going to be? that they're going to be insensitive. And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, 
Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Would you indulge me? Let me read that from the Living Bible. The year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the temple was filled with His glory. Hovering about him were mighty six-winged seraphs. With two of their wings they covered their faces, with two others they covered their feet, and with two they flew. In great antiphonal chorus they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Such singing it was. It shook the temple to its foundations. And suddenly the entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. Then I said, my doom is sealed, for I'm a foul-mouthed sinner, a member of a sinful foul-mouthed race. And I looked upon the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphs flew over to the altar and with a pair of tongs picked out a burning coal, touched my lips with it and said, now you are pronounced not guilty. Because this coal has touched your lips, your sins are forgiven. What a, what a, a, a description. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send as a messenger to my people? Who will, I, who will go? And I said, Lord, I'll go, send me. And he said, Yes, go, but tell my people this. Though you hear my words repeatedly, you won't understand them. Though you watch and watch as I perform my miracles, still you, still you won't know what they mean. Dull their understanding, close their ears and shut their eyes. I don't want them to see or hear or understand or turn to me to heal them. Then I said, Lord, how long will it be before they're ready to listen? And he replied, not until their cities are destroyed without a person left and the whole country is utter wasteland and they're all taken away as slaves to other countries far away. And all the land of Israel lies deserted. Do you remember your first encounter with world missions? I think I was fortunate in that I was raised in a home where parents deeply were deeply committed to missions. And I grew up in a church that was considered one of the most missionary-minded churches in the country. We had several people who, about my age, um, would come back and preach from mission fields around the world. And I was a member of an RA group that my mother led. Back then, the WMU was strong in a church, and they were responsible for the RA program. And so my mother and my wife's cousin, as a matter of fact, I didn't even know her then, but were the RA directors, and I grew up learning about world missions. And by the time I was about in middle school, I began to feel the call of God upon my life. My question was not, was God calling me? My question was, where, to where is that call directed? So I didn't know whether God was calling me to be a minister or whether God was calling me to be a missionary. I didn't want to be either one, to be honest with you. But if I had my choice, I would rather be a preacher. I didn't think I'd really enjoy being 
living over in Africa in some mud hut somewhere. And that's the vision I had, the, the idea I had of missions. And I went off to the seminary having surrendered my life to, be a, to, to the pastoral ministry and I had, to, I had to confront the call of God in my life as a missionary. I wouldn't go to mission services in, the, in, in seminary because everybody was going forward and surrender to be a foreign missionary and so I would just stay away on those days. But I remember finally one time talking to a friend of mine who was a, uh, a doctrinal student from Brazil his name was David D'Amico, and I asked him one day about missions, and I told him my fear of being a missionary. This is what he said. He said, Gerald, the safest place in the world is in the will of God. And I went to missions, class, missions service the next time mission service was conducted, and I dealt with this call of God to missions finally, once and for all. That was my encounter with world missions. Now there is a prophet who is unique to the prophecy. His name is Isaiah, Ben Amos. Most prophets grew up out in the, lived out in the desert in the loneliness of solitude. But this man grew up and lived among royalty. Evidently he came from a very prominent wealthy family and he consorted with kings. And on an occasion his friend who happened to be the king died. Now Uzziah was a good king. He wasn't as good as David, but he was better than Manasseh, and he led Judah back to prominence, much like David's glory. Uzziah was the man who reestablished uh, uh, the city of Jerusalem, built towers for its security. He, he was a man who went out into the desert and dug water wells and irrigated it, and the desert came alive and was fruitful. So he was known as one of Judah's greatest kings. But in his arrogancy, Uzziah went into the temple, into the place where only the priests were allowed to go, into the holiest of holies. The problem with that is that no man is allowed there except the high priest, and God struck him with leprosy. And so he lived the rest of his life in a little house next to the palace and died in infamy, died in leprosy. But when he died, the whole nation was plunged into mourning. And Isaiah, his friend, went into the temple and to grieve over the death of his king, of his friend, Uzziah. And it was in this time that he encountered the call of God to missions. Somebody said that Uzziah's death was as untimely as Lincoln's death in 1865, for the whole nation was, had forgotten God. Historians say that a cancer like a bone cancer ate away at the structure of that nation. Women were loose and immoral and, and, on, and to the northeast a giant named Assyria was beginning to rouse from its slumber and would soon march across Judah. And so it was a very difficult time in which Uzziah's um, call came. And the call of God came in the midst of his mourning over the death of, of his friend Uzziah. Now there are five principles that this story establishes with regard to encountering world missions. Now, I'm not gonna preach a mission sermon. Next week we're gonna have a special missionary speaker on Sunday morning. I just wanna to talk to, to all of us about an encounter with world missions and how we relate to that in our life. First, first principle is this, that God uses circumstances 
to make us aware of His purpose and presence. Now sometime I want to ask this question, who is this deity who keeps on rototilling my life? It just seems like that God just keeps on disturbing us, doesn't it? And He just keeps on rototilling our lives, bringing circumstances to get our attention. Who is this deity who is so interested in me that he will bring about these things into my life that just keep me conscious of him and his presence? For this man, it was the death of a friend. For you, it might be the death of a dream or the loss of a job or the are the loss of a friendship, our deep relationship. And God just keeps on bringing us back to the fact that He is there. And so in this circumstance, Isaiah went into the temple and grieved to grieve the death of his friend. And he saw the Lord, and this is what he was doing. He was sitting on a throne. Now that term there suggests sovereignty. And he went in there conscious of the throne that was empty where his friend sat. But he saw a throne above the throne where the sovereign of all of man sits. And you and I will never understand the call of God until we understand his sovereignty. For what this means is that God has a sovereign right to call you anytime, anywhere he pleases. I want you to listen to me carefully, young people. You do not have a right to decide where you're going to college. And you do not have a right to decide what job you're going to take. And you do not have a right to decide the vocation you're going to assume. You do not have a right to decide what you're going to do with your life. There is a sovereign who sits upon the throne, on the throne that is above the throne, and it is his prerogative to choose you and your, to choose your vocation for you. And you'll never understand the call of God until you understand his right to do that. And the scripture says that the foundations of the temple begin to tremble and begin to shake. God is everywhere here in this scene. Lim Barney used to say, you know, after something special, Lim Barney's not a theologian, he's a professional football player, or was. Somebody would sing a great, uh, he'd give, be giving his testimony in some religious meeting and he'd, and he'd um, get up to speak and after all he'd say, if you don't, that don't turn you on, maybe you ain't got no switches. Well, in this presence of God, this, this house is shaking. And they're turned on to God there. And it's, it's, it's interesting that the inanimate objects, this temple, these walls are shaking. They're moved. And sometimes it's easier to move stone walls than it is to move human hearts. Above this throne, empty throne, sits the enthroned God. Now I want you to look at chapter 6. In verse 1, it uses the term Lord. It, it, there is the word Lord. It's in the little case, L-O-R-D. 
But if you go down to chapter, into verse three, it's Lord in the uppercase, the capital letters. Now that's not a typo. The Lord that has little letters, Lord, is a reference to his, to his um, office, his sovereignty. In the third verse, the L-O-R-D is a reference to his, it's, that's his, that's his name, the name Yahweh, the name God. So that there is President Bush, President is his office, Bush is his name. Uh, Isaiah said, I saw Lord Yahweh sovereign. And because I understood him as sovereign, I understood his right over my life. Second principle. God reveals his character to make us see our need. And so Isaiah, when he saw him, he said, woe is me for I am ruined. I'm disintegrating. Disintegration Disintegration means I'm coming apart. We get the word integrity from that word. Now Isaiah was a man of great integrity among his peers. He was the paragon of virtue. He was respected as a man of great integrity. This man was a prophet, friend of kings. And he felt this personal integrity and he, he felt this uh, reputation that he had personally. As long as he could compare himself with others, he, he felt this integrity. But now he sees himself against the holy, holy, holy God. And all of a sudden, this sense of personal integrity vanishes. For as long as he could compare himself with others, he was all right. But now he stands alongside the holy God. And so he cries, woe is me. In Old Testament prophecy, that, that, that's called an oracle. When a prophet pronounced an oracle, he pronounced a, a, a word of judgment. He would say, woe. You know, and, you know, Amos, that was a famous word in his vocabulary. It's not that you better repent you know, before it's too late, when they pronounce the oracle of judgment or woe upon someone, I mean, it was get ready for judgment because it's on its way. And here is this prophet pronouncing judgment upon himself, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, is that, does that seem kind of strange to you that he would say that? I mean, I'm a man of unclean thoughts. I'm a man of unclean actions. I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, what you say with your mouth is what is in your heart. I'm a man whose heart is unclean. That's, the way I, that's why I talk the way I talk. And not only did he see himself in a new light, he began to see the people around him in a new light. And he said, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For when your eyes get a glimpse of the holy God, those people that seem so cool are not so cool any longer. I think I've shared with you the night I, somebody was telling me they were at that baseball game. I was sitting with my family out in the bleachers at a, at a Texas Ranger baseball game one night. 
And it was in the sixth inning. That's when the guys come out. It's not the seventh inning stretch. At the sixth inning, they come out there and they run that little thing around, that hair around and smooth off the, the, uh, the uh, infield. And while we were just waiting, sitting there and, you know, between innings and, and kind of everybody just kind of laid back cool, I looked out there and this guy had gotten out of the stands, had run out on the baseball field. And he was totally stoned out of his gourd. I mean, he was, he was really drunk. He was going to run the base pass. And everybody just kind of froze. I mean, you don't, it's something you didn't expect. Here's this drunk guy out on there before anybody knew what was happening. And he was headed to second base. And he slid into second base. Well, he staggered into second base. And he got up and he was headed to third. And when he got to third, he, he, he slid into third face first. I mean, just dove into face. And everybody was laughing and, and everybody was cheering him on, you know. And all of a sudden, the, the, the security guards came out and they ushered him off to the booze of the crowd. My older daughter was sitting by me. And she, was, she started laughing. Now, I'm not, you know, Mr. Right, but it just didn't seem right to me. And I put my hand over and I said, don't laugh at that. That ought to make all of us cry. Not only do we, are we people of unclean lips, but we live in a world that is immoral to the core it ought to make us all weep. And instantly when he sensed this disintegration, immediately he's down on the floor and he's writhing in the agony of it. I'm a man in the presence of a holy God and I'm unholy. And I'm in the presence of this sovereign God who sits on his throne and I'm, I'm wicked and evil. And no longer is there an Eve to help him. There's no leaves, fig leaves to cover him. There's no place to hide. And he calls out, woe is me, for I am unclean. And in the moment of that confession, God snaps his finger in one of those seraphim, takes a live coal off the altar. I remember as a kid listening to that. Used to have these terrible mouth ulcers, and these, this quack doctor would get something and burn them out. Let me tell you something. That'll set you on. That'll, that'll set you free. <laughs> I know what it means to have something hot. I, I'm thinking when I'd listen to my preacher preach this text as a kid, I think, man, alive. But there's no easy solution to a sinful mouth and a sinful heart. There is no cheap forgiveness. And so from the altar with a live coal, he comes and places that on his lips and he must have screamed in the agony of it because to get right with God is a painful process. Now why did he come to his lips with that live coal? He came to his lips with that live coal because that's the most, one of the most sensitive parts of the body. And he came to the lips because he met him at the point of his need because the Lord will not allow anything to come between you and his call to missions. And there's not a single one of us tonight who would not say, I'm a man ruined. I'm unfit and unqualified. That, that doesn't disqualify you to the call of God. 
because whatever stands between, he can handle. Third principle. God gives us hope to make us know that we are useful. And in a kind of a um, um, aside, um, God just kind of talks to himself. You ever done that? Where you just kind of talk to yourself, but you know somebody's listening that you want them to, want to hear. It's called a soliloquy. And God says, now I wonder, I just see him stroking his beard if he had one. I wonder whom I could send and who would go for me. Um, can you hear him saying that, kids? I wonder who I could send. Well, how about these angels over here? I mean, can't they get the job done? I mean, goodness gracious, they're singing antiphonally, and that means on one on one side and the other on the other, and while they're singing, the whole place shakes. Turn a few of them loose. That ought to, make, that ought to take care of the, the job. But somehow in the plan of God, watch this, God uses people. And He chooses in His plan to uproot them and to send them on their way somewhere else. You ever been to somewhere, don't try it here, where you're bored? And so, you know, the game's going kind of slow or the play's not just right and you got a program and all of a sudden, you know, you're checking out, you know, you roll it up and you're kind of looking through it. And that's the way I used to think that, you know, that's the way I used to look at life and that's the way I used to look at religion. That's the way I used to look at the call of God through a little place like that. And what I could see was, you know, the pulpit, a preacher, that's about all I understood. And guys who were, you know, veterans in the ministry, they'd talk to me about the problems of me. I didn't believe that. All I could see was what was directly in front of me. Kind of rolled up. I thought God was a Texan and that He liked okra. You know, and, and my whole world was wrapped up in my own life. It's just not that way, gang. There's more to it than a pulpit and a preacher. And God is not a Texan. He may or may not like okra. What He does like, what He does love, is a world that's filled with people who are different color than you, who smell differently, who dress differently. And He wants us to know that there is a plan for us and that plan has to involve those people. Now I'm not sure where God will wind up leading you. But I'm sure of this, that if you follow God, He'll lead you somewhere that will touch the lives of these people that He loves. And He gives us hope to know, so that make us know that we are useful. He needs us. Principle number four. God expands our vision to make us evaluate our availability. 
Now here's where we get down to the nitty gritty. You say, I've committed my life to Christ. I'm ready to do what God wants me to do. I used to say that too. As long as I thought it meant pastoring, you know, First First Church Dallas, I'm not sure. You know, I'm ready. But what if God laid on you tonight that He wanted you to go to some foreign place? Or what if God laid on you tonight that He wanted you to learn a new language? How available are you to that? And you say, well, you're not talking to me. I'm 50 years old. Let me tell you something. Within six months, every one of you who is 50 years old could take your, vo- your vocation within six months and be on a mission field in six months' time. How about taking that vocation that you now are involved with and taking that to Germany or to some of these Eastern European countries? I can take you tonight regardless of your age and I can get you in contact with people in the Northwest and Canada and you could be gone before the new year and involved in a mission work. And if you really don't believe that, you see me after this service. I know at least of 10 villages in central Canada would accept you tonight whatever you're doing in vocation work as the pastor or leader of a church. Don't talk to me about, I'm too old for that. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you available? Well, let's just get, let, let, let's get more personal than that. How about those people that live on the street where you live? There are people in this town who have told me time and time again, There's not a single person from any church that's ever encountered me and confronted me with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just how available are you? So God expands our vision and He lets us see that there's more than what is directly in front of us and there's more than just these little things that cause us distress and pain and sorrow that they are people who need Him. One last principle. God tells us the truth to make us face reality. He's not going to give you a recruiting line. And so He tells them, He says, I want you to go to these people and preach the gospel. I want you to go to those people to preach that will not listen to you and won't understand what you say. Now that's, that sure would it be an encouragement. And they're not going to understand what you say and they're not going to hear what you say. And the answer then, the question is, well, how long will it be before they will understand and before they will hear? And God says that's not the issue. The issue is not how responsive are these people to what you have to say. 
The issue is how responsive you are to my call. And the issue is not how successful I'm going to be in a mission, in a mission cause or how, uh, how much of an impact I'm going to have on the world. That's not the issue. The issue is who is going, who's going to be obedient to the call of God because he might lead you to a place where you haven't the foggiest idea, which you have the foggiest, you don't have the foggiest idea about it. Now here's the question. Have you ever considered that God wants you to tell somebody about Him? I want you to bow your head with me, please. Father, you've taught us to pray that the Lord of the harvest send laborers into the harvest. And you've said that the fields are white, the laborers are few. I pray, Lord, that you'll call laborers to your harvest. And that whatever stands between us, that kind of commitment, you would cleanse from our life so that we would be available. For I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now with your head still bowed, your eyes closed. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm not kidding. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight who would just lift your hand to say, Pastor, I will pray about where God wants me to live my life, do my work. And if God wants me as a preacher, as a missionary, I'll be willing to do that. Would anybody be willing to lift your hand to say that? Yes. Oh, what a thrill. Thank you. God bless you. I wish I wish you could see those hands going up here with these kids. Thank you. God bless you. Now I'm going to be praying for you that God will make His call so real and inescapable and incontrovertible that you'd know beyond a shadow of, death, death, of doubt that He's calling you. And maybe some of you already would like to come tonight to say, I, I know that God wants me in the ministry, full-time Christian vocational ministry. And I want to come and make that commitment because I want to begin in that direction with my life. Maybe as a youth minister, choir minister, Christian teacher, preacher, missionary. I hope that you'll be willing to come and make that commitment. I wonder tonight if there are some others of us who, in light of the sovereignty of God, 
would acknowledge his right to control us, take control of our lives. Maybe just in your home, do your work there. After we've had prayer, three invitations. An invitation for you to come and give your life to Christ or join our church. Or maybe to come and make this commitment of your life to full-time Christian ministry. And Andy will be here, your friend, to pray with you. So let's stand and have prayer and we'll have our invitation. Would you join me? Our Father, we pray that something ha will happen here in these final moments together. Something like the call of a man in an ancient world. Something like the call that came to Mark and Andy and Ed and Wayne and Bill and others who are here tonight who are willing to give their life to, to say I'll spend my life serving people and serving God. Oh Lord let it be that there be many who would say that who would give up desire to make money to be popular to gain fame just to serve you wherever you call. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now in a spirit of prayer, as Mark leads our song, we invite you to come.